In this second half of lecture one, we're going to talk about four cases which are key to Aboriginal rights and title jurisprudence. That is Garin, Sparrow, Vanderpeet, and Silcoteen. The first case I want to talk about is Garin. And this case gets at the fundamental question of what is the nature of Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal title, and what is the nature of the Crown's relationship to the group that holds that right or that title. And at the outset, something is not entirely maybe apparent from Garin, but has been made clear in the cases since, is that Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal title is an, and are communally held. That is the First Nation as a community collectively holds a right and collectively holds title. This communal right, we'll get into how you prove it in a, in a second, but this communal right has long been recognized to some extent. I mean, whether it's been in fact given force by the courts, you know, that's a whole other question. Uh, whether it's been respected by the government, that's another question. But this isn't a recent invention of any sorts or a recent discovery within the common law. The recognition that the Aboriginal groups in Canada and throughout North America held rights and held title has long been considered by the settler colonial legal framework. However, the question of what the source of that right is has been deeply controversial. And the difficulty ties right back into what we talked about at the outset of the class on the question of assertions of sovereignty and the reception of British law. And so you remember there is this framework of if Britain conquers a territory, there's one set of rules, and if it moves into a unsettled territory, there's another set of rules, and this is based on this terra nullis idea of a basically an empty land without quote-unquote civilized peoples, and these deeply racist and troubling ideas of the common law. And so the idea that had sort of theoretically taken precedence was that once the British crown sort of declares sovereignty over an area, then that area is subject to British rule and there's only one source of power and law in that land, and that is the power that emanates from the crown, the, the fundamental structure of power within England that was originally held by the monarch and then later held by parliament. And so on that theory, in the St. Catherine's Milling case that I talked about very briefly, there had been a idea that yes, indeed, Aboriginal title could exist. And why could it exist? It could exist because it was granted by King George III through the Royal Proclamation of 1763. So this is the one theory that you have this sovereign crown, the sovereign crown decided in its benevolence or whatever to grant 
Aboriginal title, to grant title to the First Nation communities. And the corollary, as I mentioned earlier, of the Crown having granted the right is the Crown can take away the right. But this idea was rethought in the seminal case of Guerin. And Guerin was a case that concerned events that took place just down the road from the UBC Law School. There is a reserve there for the Musqueam First Nation in the Southwest Marine Drive area of Vancouver. And what you had was the Musqueam First Nation had excess land they didn't currently need for their reserve purposes. And this is land in Vancouver. I mean, this, this is earlier, this is the 70s, these facts are happening. But the land is still really expensive and is incalculably valuable now on the open market. So the Musqueam band decided that they wanted to lease this land to some private entity to make some money to help with their administration, etc. And so they had to go through the crown to lease this land. If you remember, I mentioned in the Royal Proclamation the idea that private individuals couldn't acquire land from First Nations that was set out in the Royal Proclamation. That idea is continued. And the idea is that if you hold reserve land, this is Musqueam, we're talking about a reserve, an Indian reserve. If you hold reserve land, you can't as the First Nation, sell that land directly to a private party or even lease it, even enter into a long-term lease, you have to surrender that back to the Crown who enters into the lease or sells the land on your behalf. And so the Crown was involved in assisting the Musqueam to enter into a lease for the land, and the Crown behaved very badly. In essence, they didn't acquire the best deal that was available in the market. They misrepresented to the Musqueam how much rent they could get for this land. And then really importantly, they suggested to the Musqueam, they being the Indian agent on behalf of the federal government, suggested to the Musqueam that they could renegotiate the lease every five years while neglecting to mention that there was going to be a 15% increase on rent cap. So you, you couldn't increase the rent by more than 15% per year. So the Musqueam surrender the land to the Crown. The Crown enters into this lease that is just not what the Musqueam thought they were getting. And they sue and they win. And in the context of winning, the court explains the fundamental nature of the interest in land that the Musqueam hold over their reserve. And the court in Influential Reasons by uh, Justice Dixon, later Chief Justice Dixon, says, look, Aboriginal title over land does not derive from the Royal Proclamation of 1763. It's an independent right. It predates the Royal Proclamation. The Royal Proclamation recognizes and confirms the existence of Aboriginal title, but it does not create it. 
So what is Aboriginal title? And the court explains, it's a sui generis interest. Sui generis means unique. It's a legal right to occupy and possess lands. However, and this is important, the court says that the crown still retains the ultimate underlying title. And this is getting into a issue that's problematic and still not, I think, entirely worked out very well. But the idea is that the crown, the fundamental holder of sort of the sovereign power in Canada, the, the theory of the uh, state on this most fundamental level, owns all the land in Canada. And this is, in fact, in theory true, even of land that is held in fee simple interest, like land that is owned in the sense that most private individuals hold title if they own land. That is, there's an underlying title that the crown holds and the crown grants you a fee simple interest in that land, which is an absolute interest. There's nothing you, you can't do with your fee simple land subject to applying, complying with applicable laws, but it's a still an interest granted from the crown. You know, where do you get your, your title to your land? You get it from the government because they're ultimately the, the holder of the title who can give you good title. So the idea that the crown owns all the land in Canada is the theoretical basis for the property law that applies, you know, to in, in general. However, in the Aboriginal context, it becomes a bit more strange. And so the idea that is asked to be held at the same time is that there's this sui generis, unique, Aboriginal interest in land, which stems from the fact that these First Nations, long before the King of England was even aware that there was a North America, used this land and at times excluded others from the land, changed the land, you know, they exercised things that would be easily identifiable as an ownership interest within a European framework and did so you know, without any involvement whatsoever of the crown, of, of, of the king of England. So there's this tension that you can see where there's this interest that's recognized based on pre-contact practices. And yet there is the theory that the crown owns everything. How did that happen? You know, it's a, a declaration that was made in England. Oh, we own North America now. It's a it's a difficult proposition, and if it sounds difficult, that's good. That means you're probably thinking it through. So, But what you want to think is the, the idea presented in Garen is that Aboriginal title does not come from the king. It's not the royal proclamation. It's not King George who gave you Aboriginal title. It is rather simply the case that King George recognized what already existed and it already existed because it's a unique thing that stems from pre-contact use and occupation of land by Canada's First Nations. And we're going to talk more about the nature of Aboriginal title when we get to the Silcoteen case. But one of the features of holding land under an Aboriginal title 
is that it is inalienable to anybody but the crown. As I mentioned a few times, you can't just have private individuals come and buy or lease this land. Rather, the First Nation has to give the land to the crown who then enters into these arrangements. That is seen as a nature of Aboriginal title. And you know, we'll, we can talk a bit more about maybe the lack of a good reason for that. Um, but the theoretical reason is a benevolent one, I suppose. The idea was that in the Royal Proclamation, there was a recognition that Indigenous people had been exploited by private European actors. And so in the Royal Proclamation, it notes that great frauds and abuses have been committed in purchasing lands of the Indians to their great dissatisfaction. And so the crown stepped in and say, okay, everything's going to come through us. So you have this situation where the Musqueam hold their title. They hold this reserve and they have a unique Aboriginal interest in this land, in this reserve land. They can't negotiate with these people who want to use that land, who want to lease that land, who want to, in fact, put a golf course on that land. Instead, the crown negotiates with the golf course folk and gives the money to the Musqueam after the negotiation. And the Musqueam, in turn, have to surrender the land to the crown for the term of the lease so that the crown can do all this. This creates a fiduciary relationship. So a fiduciary relationship is something that can be created in many different areas of law. It's a trust-like relationship where one entity takes discretionary control over the interests of another entity and is charged with acting in the best interests of that person who gives them control of their interest. There's a number of classic examples of fiduciary relationships. The, the most classic is the trustee and the beneficiary. So somebody gives property to the trustee. The trustee holds it for the benefit of the beneficiary. The trustee has to act in the beneficiary's best interests. As lawyers, we have fiduciary obligations to our clients. Our clients put their legal interests in our care and control, and we have to act in their best interests in discharging our duties. We can't favor our own personal interests over the interests of our clients. The Crown said, or the court said, when the Crown accepts the surrender in a situation such as was the case in Guerin, there's a fiduciary relationship that arises. There's discretionary control over the interest in land, and the crown has to exercise that power to, over that discretionary interest with the care and loyalty required of a fiduciary. And the court said about Garen, well, there's a breach here. You, it's not consistent with acting in the best interests of the First Nation. It's not consistent with the fiduciary duty for you to have negotiated one deal and told the First Nation another deal and applied to them that they were going to be able to renegotiate rent every five years when in fact you had capped it at 15% a year. And the term of the lease in Garen is for 
75 years and it was entered into in 1958. So this lease goes until 2033. And so the court said, look, this is a breach of the fiduciary duty. The Crown has had to pay damages, pay money to the First Nation for breaching this duty. However, importantly, the, the facts of Guerin arise before 1982. Though it was decided afterwards, the trial level was before 1982. The case is it's a pre-Section 35, pre-Constitution Act 1982 case. So we'll get into Section 35 in one second. So, Garen, you have an example of the court saying, look, Aboriginal title and Aboriginal rights we'll see sort of flow from the same wellspring. These weren't given to the First Nations by the Crown. These were predating contact. That, that's where they, they've been practiced since before Europeans came on the scene at all. And so... Where are they from? Well, they're they're from these pre-contact practices and use and occupation. Their nature then is sui generis. It's unique. It's it's not like other interests in land in the British system. It's not like the way somebody holds land in fee simple. It's not like the way somebody holds land under a lease. It's a unique interest in land. And what comes with that includes this inalienability right, the idea that you can't sell this land or lease this land to anybody except for through surrendering it to the crown who will then enter into lease or sale on your behalf. You can only enter into a lease or a sale in relation to this land by selling it, sorry, by surrendering it to the crown. Those are the key ideas from Guerin. And if you can also keep in mind this sort of tension as between this declaration of sovereignty and the existence of these First Nations with use and occupation of land and traditional practices and laws and rules, if you can keep in mind that tension of someone in England saying, I now have radical title to everything here and how that could affect the interests of a First Nation, who in some cases still would have had no contact with Europeans, but in all cases had not been militarily conquered or surrendered or signed a, you know, a treaty as a conquered foe, how there could be that claim? You know, keep in mind that, that tension and just how does that work? And with that, we'll move away from Garen and we'll talk about Section 35 and the constitutionalization of Aboriginal rights. So Section 35 of the Constitution Act, we've talked about previously in this class, and important to note, it's outside of the Charter. The Charter is Sections 1 through 34 of the Constitution Act, 1982, and this is Section 35. And I have read the text before. I'll read it again. The existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. And so what does this mean? It was the source of many conferences, many much speculation. And the answer as to what it meant from the Supreme Court of Canada 
It didn't come in the first few years of charter jurisprudence, you know, not the first few years of the court working through the Constitution Act 1982. It wasn't until the 1990 case of Sparrow that the Supreme Court of Canada finally examined the scope of Section 35. And this is, again, a Musqueam case. This is a Musqueam man, a Musqueam fisherman named Ronald Sparrow, and he gets arrested or fined for fishing with a net that is longer than was permitted by his food fishing license. And he challenges this on the basis that he has an aboriginal right to fish. And he outlines an argument that it says that the Musqueam have retained the right to fish in the territories they've inhabited on, inhabited and fished on for centuries. Their rights to the land and its resources have never been extinguished by a treaty. Section 35 of the Constitution Act reinforces their right to fish. And this gets up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so what's claimed here is an Aboriginal right. So you want to think that there's two concepts that we're talking about here. Aboriginal title and Aboriginal rights. You want to think that Aboriginal rights are the right to do some activity, but it falls short of title, sort of an ownership interest in the land. Title is the highest and best right. It's the right to control, exclusively occupy, possess land. And so if you could prove title, you know, there's, we'll talk about how you prove title and and the difficulties there with the Silco Teen case. But if, even if you can't go so far as to prove an Aboriginal title, a communal interest, communal ownership over a piece of land based on historical use and occupation by the First Nation, you may be able to prove an Aboriginal right. That is, that there's some customer practice that you have been engaging in which is protected. And in the next case, Vanderpeet will talk about how you prove that your practice is a protected Aboriginal right. But in Sparrow, the evidence was that the Musqueam people had been fishing in this area since time immemorial, and that the right had never been extinguished in any way, shape, or form. The Crown had never attempted to say that it had extinguished the right. And so, therefore, the court was willing to accept that the right continued. And as I say, the next case, Vanderpeet, is the better case for understanding how you would establish an Aboriginal right. What Sparrow is so important for is the introduction of a justification analysis into Section 35. So I'll get into the Sparrow test in a second. So the court in that in Sparrow said, okay, there is a right. They they talked about how the Musqueam had lived in the area since long before the coming of Europeans, that the salmon fishery was always a part of the distinctive Musqueam culture, and it's significant to the Musqueam for subsidence, but also for ceremonial and social occasions. So the court decides, well, what's the right at issue? It's the right to fish for both food and ceremonial purposes. 
But then the court goes on to say, okay, well, what do we do about it? And they say, there, one way to look at it is that there's nothing explicitly saying that government action inconsistent with a right will be null and void. They say the language of recognition and affirmation doesn't necessarily incorporate an idea that anything inconsistent will be judicially struck down. On the other hand, the court says you could take the position that there's nothing suggesting there should be a justification analysis here. There's nothing like section one of the charter, which we've discussed, which explicitly by its own words does not apply to section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 because section 35, while a part of the Constitution Act 1982, explicitly is not within the charter. So you have sort of two extreme possibilities. On the one hand, an idea that there's going to be no protection for the rights described in Section 35. On the other hand, that there's going to be no ability for the government to justify an infringement of these rights, and they'll be effectively absolute. And the court says that we're not going to accept either of those interpretations. And the court says in a key passage, there is no explicit language in the provisions, that is the provisions of section 35, that authorizes this court or any court to assess the legitimacy of any government legislation that restricts Aboriginal rights. Yet, we find that the words recognition and affirmation incorporate the fiduciary relationship referred to earlier and so import some restraint on the exercise of sovereign power. So just to, as an aside, this is tying back into Guerin and the idea of the fiduciary relationship between the crown and Aboriginal peoples. Continuing in the quote from Sparrow, rights that are recognized and affirmed are not absolute. Federal legislative powers continue, including, of course, the right to legislate with respect to Indians pursuant to Section 9124 of the Constitution Act. These powers, however, now must be read together with Section 35. In other words, federal power must be reconciled with federal duty, and the best way to achieve that reconciliation is to demand the justification of any government regulation that infringes upon or denies Aboriginal rights. Such scrutiny is in keeping with the liberal interpretive principle enunciated in Nuijic and the concept of holding the crown to a high standard of honorable dealing with respect to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, as suggested by Guerin. So you see here this idea that, okay, we're not going to say that these rights cannot be protected. We're going to refer to this idea of the fiduciary, the idea that just as when the crown is exercising discretionary control over land on behalf of First Nations, Similarly, when the Crown is exercising its discretion in respect of a constitutionally recognized Aboriginal right, it must be acting within that fiduciary relationship and take into account the best interests of the Aboriginal group. That doesn't mean it's immune from infringement, though, and the court decides that we're going to read in an infringement analysis, a justification analysis into section 35. So I talked in the charter context about when you're going to have a constitutionalized right, you can either 
explicitly allow some justification framework whereby the government can say that we're going to infringe this right for the greater good, as it were, or you can expect that the actual rights themselves will be read down so as to allow the government some range of ability to still legislate effectively. So in essence, in Sparrow, the court decided to take the former option. It decided to allow for a justification framework to be read into Section 35, despite the fact that Section 1 does not apply to Section 35. Section 1 of the Charter does not apply to Section 35. And despite the fact there's nothing in the language of Section 35 itself that suggests a justification framework is called for. If this doesn't sit right with you, you wouldn't be the only person. The Sparrow decision has been criticized for just that uh, since it's been since it was released, you know, 30 years ago now. But for the purposes of this course, you need to know the Sparrow justification test. And so the court says, if you want to determine if an Aboriginal right has been interfered with, you have to ask whether there's been an unreasonable limitation, something that's imposed undue hardship on the Aboriginal group in the exercise of its Aboriginal right. Has the Aboriginal group been denied their preferred means of exercising a right? And that's the onus is on the individual or group challenging the legislation as infringing their right to show that. Just like in the charter framework, you have to show that your rights have been violated. You have to show there's been uh, something done to you that runs contrary to your charter protected rights. So too in the Aboriginal context, you have to show that there's been an unreasonable limitation, undue hardship, or you've been denied your preferred means of exercising your right. Once you have done that, that is once you have shown a prima facie, at first instance, infringement, you then shift into the justification framework. And broadly speaking, the justification framework has a two-part test from Sparrow, but the second part breaks into three components. And the first question is whether the Crown was pursuing a valid legislative objective. And the second question is, given the Crown's trust relationship, that is the fiduciary relationship and responsibility towards Aboriginal peoples, has the honor of the Crown been upheld? And we're going to talk more about this concept of the honor of the Crown when we get to the Manitoba Métis case in particular, because it's an idea that's having sort of had some increased thinking and its place is more better understood within the Aboriginal framework now. So at this first stage of, is there a pressing objective? Is there a compelling and substantial legislative objective that could justify infringing an Aboriginal right? The courts have, have later spoken about the need to consider this within the framework of reconciliation and that's an idea i just want to say it now but i'm going to come back to reconciliation in a little while um but the valid legislative objectives that may justify an infringement that have been found this isn't sparrow but this is how sparrow has been interpreted and applied the valid legislative objectives include conservation and resource management protecting endangered species 
adherence to international treaties, pursuit of economic and regional fairness, ensuring safe waterways, these types of things. So similar to the uh, Oaks framework, you have a, a fairly broad latitude provided to the crown to determine its priorities and to do so in a manner that may even infringe a constitutionally protected right. And this list of possibly valid objectives is not closed. And furthermore, while the list of objectives is not closed and it's, it's quite broad, it's not any objective at all that can justify infringing an Aboriginal right. Uh, ones that have failed, they've been tried and failed, include enhancing sport fishing, uh, which is seen as insufficiently important to overcome a constitutionally protected right. And some are, are so vague and imprecise that have been tried that they've been rejected. Um, the Crown has tried to say that it can justify an infringement just so long as it's quote-unquote in the public interest. And the court said, well, that's too vague. You have to justify it with some better objective than that. So if you get through the first part of the Sparrow test, if you get through the question of whether there's a compelling objective that can justify infringing an Aboriginal right, you then get into the second part of the justification, which asks whether the Crown has acted in a manner that upholds the honor of the Crown. Has it acted in a manner that's consistent with the special trust relationship it has with Aboriginal peoples? And within this justification analysis, and here you can effectively think of four factors that are required to be considered. And the, the first is priority. Has the Crown adequately prioritized the constitutionally protected Aboriginal interest? In the case of fishing, the court has said that in the Sparrow case, the nature of the Musqueam food fishing rights, the constitutional nature of these food fishing rights, means that any allocation of priorities after valid conservation measures have been implemented must give top priority to Indian food fishing. So after you've done your conservation, you have to make sure you take care of the constitutionally protected right. And this is a general principle that needs to be taken from Sparrow, that the court is going to look at whether you've adequately prioritized the constitutionally protected rights above non-constitutionally protected interests. However, this is not absolute, and you're allowed to prioritize things like conservation. So the first factor would be prioritization. The second factor would be minimal infringement. And in this case, it's you know, very similar to the Oaks analysis. Has the has the Crown shown that it has impacted the Aboriginal right at issue as little as possible in order to meet its legislative objective? Another factor is compensation. If appropriate, has fair compensation been provided if there's a situation of expropriation? And furthermore, in a passage from Sparrow that gets picked up on in the Haida Nation case, there's a question of whether the Aboriginal group in question has been consulted with respect to the conservation measures being implemented. So if you're going to put in some measure that's going to reduce an Aboriginal right to fish, you need to consult with the First Nation before doing so. And in the result in Sparrow, the court said, you know, we need a new trial. You know, we'll affirm the setting aside of the conviction of Mr. Sparrow, and we'll do a new trial consistent with these reasons. So what you have in Sparrow is a key case that 
sets out this idea that we're going to protect, the court is going to protect Aboriginal rights and is going to assess whether legislation infringes Aboriginal rights, but is going to read a justification analysis into Section 35, despite the fact that there's nothing explicit in the Constitution that says such will be done. So it's a balance. The rights do acquire constitutional protection, but that protection is not absolute. The big things to remember from Sparrow are that very fact that the court read in this justification analysis. And you should know the stages of the justification analysis. You want to think, okay, is there a pressing and substantial objective, a compelling objective that could justify infringing a right? And you want to think this is going to be similarly quite broad to what we saw in the Oaks test. Uh, there will be a, a number of things that can justify this. Conservation is certainly right up at the top, but it's not the only thing that can be used for justification. Then you want to think there's a question of prioritization. Has the Aboriginal group been given proper prioritization? Has there been as little impairment as possible, a minimal impairment standard? Has compensation been offered and has consultation occurred before the infringement? So if you can remember that framework, then you have the test to apply if you think there's been an infringement of Aboriginal rights. I will talk about the infringement of Aboriginal title when we get to Silcoteen. But I do want to turn now to the Vanderpeet case. And this is an important case on how you establish the existence of an Aboriginal right. And will, I think, shine some light on what an Aboriginal right is, in essence. And in this case, it dealt with um, fishing rights again. A member of the Stolo Nation caught some salmon under a valid license to fish for food, but they weren't allowed to sell the fish under these licenses. Um, a non-Indigenous person offered to put to purchase $50 of, of fish from them, and Mr. Vanderpeet was uh, agreed and, and was charged, and charged under the British Columbia Fisheries Regulations with having unlawfully sold fish caught under a food fish license. And he challenges his conviction. He succeeds at first instance and it goes to the Court of Appeal. He's unsuccessful and it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada who dismisses his appeal. And in so doing though, they explore the question of whether there's an Aboriginal right held by the Stolo people to fish commercially, to fish for sale. And the court explained that the analysis requires first that you characterize the right at issue. And this involves having regard to the nature of the action the applicant claims was done pursuant to an Aboriginal right, the nature of the governmental regulation at issue, and then the pre-contact practice customer tradition is relied upon to establish the right. And the court cautioned that when characterizing a right, you don't want to be too specific. You know, you don't want to describe exactly what the person did in great detail, but you want to stay somewhat general. 
So for example, in this case, you had this person, you know, go fishing with a license for food and then sell the fish. And this was characterized as a claimed right to an Aboriginal right to exchange fish for money or other goods. So the money or other goods is, is keeping a bit more general from what the person actually did. And that is what the court is going to see if the person claiming the right can establish as an Aboriginal right. And that involves the second stage of the Vanderpeet analysis. So you've characterized the law, then you want to see if the activity so characterized is an element of a practice, custom, or tradition integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group claiming the right. So there's, there's a lot to unpack in that phrase. First, you know Aboriginal group claiming the right, and this is a key thing. Aboriginal rights are held by groups. They are communally held. Individuals practice Aboriginal rights, but they are held by the community. And then you see the, the right must be an element of a practice, customer tradition integral to the distinctive culture of the group. So that's the key phrase. Is this something that's integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group? And the court goes on to explain that this involves proving the existence of an ancestral practice, customer tradition that was an integral part of the distinctive culture of the claimants pre-contact society and proving reasonable continuity between the ancestral practice, customer tradition and the modern form. So I'll unpack those a little bit. So they're saying it has to be an integral part of the distinctive culture of the pre-contact society. What does pre-contact society mean? Well, this means the Aboriginal group's society before contact with European peoples. Now, this has been subject to some criticism as making Aboriginal rights essentially backwards looking and saying that at the moment of contact, if you weren't doing something by then, you know, it can't be an integral part of your society. Any changes to your society, developments, etc., in the last 200 years are sort of read out of the test. This has been criticized by, um, by John Burroughs, among other people as unwise, but it's the test. And, and it's essentially tells you something about what are these Aboriginal rights that we're talking about. And so they are practices that are an integral part of a distinctive culture that existed pre-contact. You have to look back to the pre-European times and say, what are the integral parts of a distinctive culture? This has been explained to mean it must be a, a defining feature of the culture. Now, that doesn't mean that it needs to be unique, though. So distinct does not mean unique, but it means that it must be something of central importance to who the culture is. So to take an example, there are many things that all cultures do. All cultures eat. So a right to eat wouldn't be distinctive to a pre-contact First Nation culture. However, when you start specifying a, a, a 
ceremony or a tradition around eating, then you may be getting into a distinctive component of the culture and certain, certainly a participation in a particular fishery or a particular hunt. These are things that can be sufficiently distinctive. And it doesn't matter if other First Nations also did the practice. It doesn't have to make you, as I say, unique, but rather it just needs to be a distinctive feature of the culture at issue. And then you have to consider continuity. You have to consider whether this practice, which is shown to be integral to a distinctive culture, the historical practice, has sufficient continuity to the modern exercise of that right. So what I mean here is that you need to show a link, that this is the modern version of this earlier right. And the rights are not frozen in time. They can evolve and they can change in the way they are practiced, so long as it's fundamentally the same thing that's being done. So if the court were to say that engaging in a moose hunt was a integral part of a distinctive society, then it wouldn't matter if the moose hunt went from using one method, say bows and arrows, to moving to using guns. That wouldn't change the fundamental nature of the activity. However, if it were to become something totally different claimed, you know, shooting wolves from a helicopter, well, this all of a sudden is so far removed from the right that was established that it loses the continuity. It's so far removed from the integral part of a distinctive culture. This can be a fine line, of course. But the courts have been clear that you don't have to show that the right has never lapsed. You, you just want to show a connection between what is being done now and what was done pre-contact. And so in Vanderpeet, the court found that there just wasn't evidence of pre-contact trade of fish as being a distinctive element of stolo culture or integral to a distinctive element of stolo culture. So the court said, look, while you may have a right to fish for food, this does not include a right to exchange fish for goods or services or goods or money. So what to take away from Vanderpeet? So you want to think of the Vanderpeet test for proving an aboriginal right, that is proving this right that will be constitutionally protected. Has the claimant shown the existence of an ancestral practice, custom, or tradition that was an integral part of the distinctive culture of the claimant's pre-contact society and reasonable continuity between the ancestral practice, custom, or tradition and its modern form? And again, Vanderpeet and Sparrow are both early cases in the Aboriginal rights and title framework. And so they're very important cases to think of and to know for these tests. However, the way these tests have been developed and applied has been refined over the years. And so if this all seems a little bit fuzzy, I'm not surprised, but I'm going to come back in this next case I'm going to discuss, the Silcoteen case, which I'll actually do in the next podcast, a part three, where I'm going to 
go through that case and then try to synthesize a, a framework um, that you would use to ana analyze a question of Aboriginal rights or title. And hopefully that will help clarify a bit of the fuzziness of, of Sparrow and Vanderpeet. And then after discussion, I will also point out a few of the problems with the Sparrow and Vanderpeet framework. I've touched on them along the way, but I'd like to get a little deeper into them. So that will be the subject of the next and final component of Lecture 3.